everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Landry Fleming. And I'm Drew Johnson. And you're listening to Circle Up, a podcast series brought to you by Jackalope Theatre Company. Jackalope, in collaboration with the Chicago Inclusion Project, has developed Circle Up, a collection of new play readings that is dedicated to amplifying stories that are diverse in scope, as well as providing a safe harbor for evolving work. We interview Circle Up's playwrights about their lives, their plays, and their process, while including clips from the play reading itself. We're here interviewing playwright Kari Dodds-Fitch, who wrote Red Bike, a play with a fascinating structure consisting of 50 short sections. These sections detail the biking journey of one 11-year-old child in a town just like any other town in America. All right, let's get to our conversation with Kari Dad. So Kari Dad, let's start off really simple. Where are you from? Uh, born in Philadelphia. Uh, I grew up mostly on the eastern seaboard, uh, North Carolina, Florida, Bethlehem, PA, Miami, de- brief detour in Salt Lake, and then New Jersey. Okay. Why uh, Now, why did you move so much? Uh, my dad was in textiles. Uh, my dad's from Argentina, but when uh, and my mom's from Cuba. And when they immigrated here... Uh, Oh, long story. So my dad was a professional soccer player, and uh, the soccer wasn't happening at the time when he was here. So uh, so he had to start all, his whole life all over again and ended up in textiles and, and then get, getting transferred from job to job. So uh, what, what brought you here to Chicago? Uh, two things, actually. But first thing, uh, working with Jackalope on this reading of Red Bike, I gave this script to Lisa Portes, who's directing it a year ago. Uh, she's one of the first people I sent it to just on a hunch. I mean, we've known each other for a long time, but on a hunch that she might dig it. And uh, and she responded right away and said, I have to do this. And I was like, great. Well, if you can find somebody, that'd be awesome. And then uh, we just waited. We pitched it to a bunch of folks. Uh, she always, so one of the unusual things about the script is that it can be done with one performer, two or three. Uh, she's always seen it in her head as one performer and she's always wanted Avi to be in it and uh and so that was her mission <laughs> and uh and then uh somehow along the way a dramaturg named heather helinski who's actually based uh in the pa region mostly in pittsburgh um met bernie uh who works here at jackalope and said i gave him red bike i hope you don't mind they said no are you kidding and the more the merrier and then he contacted me and said oh i'm in love with this play i want to do it uh we have to do it in the series and i just knew nothing about it and i was like game on and then i contacted lisa and she was like what i have to be part of this so yeah so the scheme was hatched uh late <laughs> fall and then uh and then uh i'm also here simultaneously because my play detroit is opening at halcyon theater and what led you to to playwriting how did how did you get here uh to playwriting i was always writing short stories and poems i was also writing songs uh, English teacher in a junior high said, have you tried plays? I was like, nope. Uh, and, uh, but I wanted to get an A in her class and, uh, she said, I did want to impress her tremendously as a writer. Um, and I kind of was a little bit peeved or rankled or mystified by why she said that to me. And so I went to my local library and I just said, well, plays. Okay. What my only reference points at that point had been, uh, Shakespeare and and musicals, uh, neither of which seemed humanly possible, and so <laughs> for, for somebody in junior high. So uh, so I just kind of started reading a lot of plays, and I, I gave myself the task of reading ten plays a week at my local library, and uh, so I spent a whole summer doing that. And through that, I think I became fascinated by how malleable the form is. Uh, 
expansive, weird, strange, wonderful. And there are so many things you can do on stage. And so, and then after that, I wrote a play, uh, which is terrible, but I wrote it. I got to the end. I wrote 40 pages. Woohoo. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I just, uh, so something in me was smitten. I think it had to do with playing all the parts in a way as the writer, so you do that first. And, uh, and so I started taking acting classes. And I think that, so meeting the text on the page as an actor uh, was a way of learning about what's inside, what makes a play, what's the inside of a play, the machinery of it. Um, and then through that, I just started writing things for my, me and my friends to do, but just kind of like a hobby. And then through that, it just sort of took over my life and I realized this is what I really love. And so, yeah, that's how, that's why. <laughs> do you remember what that first play was about? Oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's in, it's in, I have two places I archive my work. Uh, it's at the Ohio state university archives. And it's a play, well, interestingly enough, it sort of deals with themes that I'm still dealing with, which is disenfranchisement, um, uh, characters that may be deemed on the margins of society, uh, or feeling that they are invisible to the rest of society. Uh, and it was a love story. It was very romanticized, kind of, um, let me think sort of like a drugstore cowboy, you know, romanticized, uh, we're down and out, we love each other till death do us part kind of play. And, um, and it was had, it had sort of an interest in the possibility of tenderness in a brutal world. And it also had in it um, the, the deals we make in our life to survive and a sense of humor and also a kind of big sort of mushy lyricism. Uh, so, yeah, there's that play. <laughs> <laughs> so when you write these characters, do you have, do you kind of base them on somebody that you have met? Um, do you act them out yourself? Is there something in you that you bring to these characters that you write? Yes, I mean, look, uh, you know, this is the thing about being a writer, for those of you who are writers out in the universe, <laughs> um, we're always stealing things, right? We're always observing, we're recording life, and sometimes characters sort of alight upon us, sometimes maybe from an image we saw or someone we saw on a train or a bus or down the street, maybe even five years ago, but that image stays with us, and then that sort of filters into a character that we're making, and that becomes a composite of somebody else, and unless you're writing something that's, which I have done, uh, that's based on historical fact, uh, where you're drawing from source material in a very direct way. Uh, it's always composites. Um, I spent a very small portion of my writing life for a little while, and then I stopped um, <laughs> writing directly about people I knew, and that was not uh, probably wise, um, only because you feel really implicated and you start to think about the ethical boundaries of that. And um, even though it wasn't, they were all kind of versions of them, I think I felt a little bit just uh, hampered by that. So, so yeah, but, you know, and do I act it out? Yes, when I'm at the, I am one of those writers at the writing desk that actually says it out loud as she's writing it. I'm not hiding it like Eileen Miles <laughs> says she does. <laughs> I actually like I'm speaking the whole thing because I really want to hear the rhythm of it, and because it's for embodiment for the theater for live performance. Uh, you, if it doesn't sound, if it doesn't flow and sound, then you don't know where the action is underneath. Uh, you can get very seduced by the page on the screen. In this clip, the child lists dreams for their future and notes that dreaming doesn't end with childhood. Superstar, 
helicopter, ice cream maker, <laughs> diver, climber, builder, ninja warrior, movie maker, Oscar winner, Nobel winner, Olympics winner, scientist, athlete, inventor, history teacher, philosopher, poet, shaman, singer, leader, fire breather, lion, beast, unicorn. <laughs> My parents said, let's make us wish for the impossible. They're unrealistic. Stop making lists. But I didn't listen. Superstar, pirate, astronaut, helicopter, ice cream maker, diver, climber, builder, ninja warrior, movie maker, Oscar winner, Nobel winner, Olympics winner, scientist, athlete, inventor, history teacher, philosopher, poet, shaman, singer, leader, fire breather, lion, beast, unicorn. <laughs> mom and dad make lists and not just for groceries and shit but for next year and the year after that all kinds of dreams about taking trips and buying a house and owning things one list was just appliances <laughs> another list was cities are we moving I ask they don't say but I can see them thinking Whole lot of towns we could be in. I make a face. Don't look at us like that, kid. We know some things about things. <laughs> I say, yeah. But in my heart, I know that. Red Bike follows a specific child's bike ride from beginning to end, but takes place in a town that could be anywhere in America, and the child could be any child. And while the play is incredibly detailed and specific, it has a universal quality. Can you speak more on why this was important to you? It was important to me because, um, so it's interesting. I've been wanting to write something about living in the here and now. Uh, I've traveled through a lot of small towns, especially when you're doing guest artist gigs, and you drop in, you 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 walk out uh, and then sort of take photographs in my mind of the places I've been. And, and I spent uh, the last two years sort of ironically enough, a lot of the time in the Midwest and also um, so in Kansas, North Carolina, uh, Iowa. Um, and um, I kept just passing through towns that had been left behind as it were uh, where you see the shuttered storefronts and, and, a sense of stagnation in the air and people not knowing exactly what to do with themselves, really, especially young people, because what are they, where are they going to go? Uh, what are the job opportunities? Very few. And so I started thinking about that. And then I was thinking a lot about the current social political climate and wanting to write something, two things, one that was like about joy uh, because I think that one of the things about uh, making work that's based in political resistance has to do with you can sometimes start with that place of anger and then it just stays there. And I wanted a piece that transformed, that went past anger into a place of empowerment and joy uh, for a character. And I was really interested in placing a character that's super vulnerable at the center of the narrative. Uh, and ch a child is the most vulnerable in this situation. I was really interested in what are our children learning these days? <laughs> 
<laughs> what are they growing up with? What kind of world they're growing up into? Um, this is the generation that grew up into Sandy Hook and, you know, that kind of environment. That's their memory, right? So, um, and I'm thinking, and what's what's there carrying our future for us? And so I just really wanted to place that character at the center of the narrative. And the thing about any town, anywhere kind of thing is that what I ask people that do this play is to make it local. So, so that not necessarily with place names, but more the feel and the texture of the piece should feel like absolutely you're here, it's where you are now, and this is who it's talking to. And I feel like the the problems of uh, disempowerment, inequity, um, uh, abandonment uh, in our society uh, cuts across many, 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 many state lines uh, and many, um, many different kinds of people in our society. And so I just wanted to make sure that was open and available so it didn't feel like Oh, it's just this one person has nothing to do with me. And I just really wanted to open it up and blow it open. Did you find yourself being inspired by any other artwork, theater or otherwise, when, when you were developing this play? Yeah, I was looking a lot at, um, there's this photographer that I love, uh, and I'm going to probably butcher his name, uh, Wolfgang Tillmans, uh, who does these very hyper-real photographs of ordinary, everyday things. Um, a person lying in the field, uh, an object, uh, and the colors are usually highly saturated and, and very vibrant. Um, and I was just, for some reason, I hadn't looked at his work in a while, and I just kind of kept gravitating back toward it. And I was like, ah, a play that sort of lives in this kind of color. Uh, and this kind of feeling of motion. I always feel motion when I see his work, even though a lot of it is very static uh, in terms of what he's photographing. Um, and so so it's, it started from there, I think, in terms of image. And then, um, you know, looking back at things like Walker Evans, you know, like, cla like what we think of as classic sort of Americana uh, views, um, things that are in our collective consciousness in some way, shape or form. And then, then through that, you know, just, um, a lot of it is sort of, like I said, the photographs in mind of places I visited and, and that became sort of part of that landscape and also sounds. And, you know, I think there's one thing about, and something that I'm, I feel like I'm getting, have I been always dedicated to maybe, uh, which is a friend of mine used to say, uh, some people write about, the front lawn and of America. And, and then those of us that write about the backyards of America. And I'm really interested in writing about the backyards of America, uh, and, in all the things that that means. So, so yeah. The structure of your play is fascinating and doesn't have, you know, typical acts and scenes, but rather 50 sections that you tell us in the plays notes can be seen as micro shifts in the plays universe. Would you say that this style is indicative of your writing or is it unique to red bike? And if so, how so? Uh, well, this play, part of it also on a formal level started as a dare. So I wanted to write something that felt like it was in one, in the sense of, in one, in sense of real time, on the bike, off the bike kind of thing. But actually, of course, it's not that. It's it's partly a memory play and, it, and it's partly happening in fantasy and imagination as well as in real time. Uh, but I did want that illusion. And I think once I struck upon that idea... Um, this notion, I really was obsessed with the number 50 and that kind of seems ridiculous, I suppose, but I was like 50 little scenes, 50 little snapshots. Um, so on this journey and then, and what happens through those snapshots, uh, became a kind of governing narrative form. Uh, and also I felt like there was a dare about it. Um, when I first wrote it, uh, thinking about it as maybe one voice or one actor, I thought, man, sustaining this would be like hard, but fun. Uh, and also, 
I love a sense of like giving like a little so that it, it could be, for example, a piece that runs truly in one. So there's no breaks. Uh, but I, I wanted that feeling of chapters. So like chapter one, we move through it, snapshot, next chapter, boom, 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 snapshot. Uh, so that there's a kind of moment of suspense, not suspense, but suspending the, the narrative somehow with the audience and also living and breathing with it with the audience in a different way. Um, so that kind of disrupts a little bit of our attention while we're still on the journey. Um, and then I thought it would be fun in terms of if this were scored musically in some way that it would allow another layer to kind of enter the soundscape of it in some regard. Um, and then through that, in terms of whether it's indicative, I've been writing for the last uh, bum, 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 bum. <laughs> uh, the last sort of three or four years uh, plays that have no character uh, assignations that are what I call choral pieces in a sense. Um, how, you know, six actors, 10, 13, 20, whoever shows up is on board. Uh, and the lines are sort of divvied up in the rehearsal room. And, you know, there's a very specific score on the page and how I'm treating white space, but, uh, and line breaks, but, but otherwise kind of very free form, uh, to allow collaborators to kind of, well, use their imagination and be creative with their, what what's there and what do they see and how are they going to approach it. And one thing I always keep saying to my collaborators is that it's very physical because uh, what it's not is somebody, as I am doing right now, standing in a microphone bar and reading the text. <laughs> so, so uh, and I think that's super important because I think sometimes when they see the text on the page, they go, oh, it's just like a bunch of words. And I go, no, it's actually like full of action. Um, and so, so understanding that there's a dance to it in a way is important to me. And, and that's been happening in the like say maybe since about 2013, I've just been moving in that direction as a writer and, and it's becoming more distilled, uh, in my craft and, and red bike is sort of the, in terms of that journey, probably the, uh, crystallization of where I've been at. At one point in this script, you include a stage direction, inviting the creative team to add their own personal childhood dream jobs to an already lengthy collection of jobs that the main character lists off. Um, what is your relationship to the inherent handing off of agency from playwright to any given production's creative team yeah it's tricky because <laughs> sometimes you know you're like freedom and then people do stuff <laughs> and then and then it's like what well wait a minute hold on <laughs> uh i didn't exactly mean all of it um no i'm very i want people to respect the score on the page but i also want there to be a sense of uh, within that score, a place to kind of, you know, what are they going to do physically? What's going to happen in this moment? And I think in that moment in particular, it came from, it started from an idea of what would happen if there was this moment in this in the play. And so far, it has only happened in a workshop of it that, that I did in London last summer where uh, we actually handed pieces of paper to the audience in that section and they all wrote down like their dream, whatever, when they were kids and they handed it to the performers in the middle of that section. And then the performers started to read out the audience's uh, responses. Uh, and I loved that so much. And I just said, oh, I, I hope somebody does that again. Uh, not sure if that would ever happen in another production of it or another iteration of it, workshop or reading. Um, but that moment of, because I think what's tricky about um, about this play is that can, it's very, it's all direct address, but I think there can be a way to do it where, the audience feels like I'm just hanging back and it's kind of happening before me. And I, I don't want that to happen. I actually want the opposite of that. So, so looking for moments of direct engagement in some regard, um, beyond the director address seemed important to me. And also I thought it would be playful, uh, since it is a play and, uh, and to let it, 
kind of breathe in a different way. And so that section could be much longer in a sense than, than what's scripted. And, uh, and so far I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to take it on in that way. <laughs> um, okay. So you've, you've said that this play can, can be performed by one actor or three actors or two or two. Okay. Or two. Well, that's good to know. Um, is it still the same character? Is it different sides of that character? How do, how do you see that working? They're sharing the role. Hmm. So so the the two-actor version, the two-actor score, which does exist, uh, which is in fact the production that's going to happen in Cincinnati in January of 2019, is going to do the two-actor score. Uh, the three-actor score, which just premiered in Salt Lake City and also is going to then play Philadelphia, and actually two different three-actor scores. It's fascinating to kind of constantly rescore the play <laughs> because of the performers and their vibe and like what the style of the production is uh, and where we want to place the focus uh, at any given moment um, in terms of the of who's carrying the, the narrative voice. But for me, it's always they're sharing that kid. They're sharing the kid. And I, I'm... What I always tell collaborators is to... When they're casting it... Um, if you're going to have, let's say, the three or the two, have them people that look radically different from each other and, you know, as as much as possible. Like what I don't want is like, you know, all the twins or something, you know, like I, I'm I'm interested in the fact of having the audience understand that the dilemma that the kid is in, again, cuts across many different bodies. Uh, and and I'm, I, make, I think it makes it more theatrical and more exciting to sort of have that as the political core of the play uh so even even in terms of its casting so yeah but it but it's been kind of a uh a little bit it's sort of like doing chess or something but i've been like because i did one three actor score and i thought it's done that three actor score is done and then i was we started working in philadelphia and i was like oh i have to change it completely oh my god you know <laughs> so but it but it's kind of interesting as you hear different musics in it and uh, and i think that part's kind of exciting and um, I, I have this sort of, it may not ever happen. Well, I don't know. I shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> I talk, was talking to Alf and Filmer who, uh, 16th street, um, who loves the play. And, and she said once to me, what, it's like 12 kids on stage. And they're, and I was like, well, maybe in one day, <laughs> I can't score that right now. My head's swimming already, but, uh, but I'm intrigued by that notion of having even more multiplicity. Um, it would, it would have to be very delicate though, in order to pull that off. But yeah, it, but still the idea being you're sharing it. In this next clip, the child converses with an old man about the decaying of a town and those who watch it die. So 
town vanishes right along with them. What was the name of that town? Hamburger. Say to the old guy, are you shitting me? <laughs> the town's called Hamburger? Old guy says, watch your language. How old are you anyway, kid? Eleven. <laughs> Eleven's too young for curse words. Who made them rules? People. <laughs> what people got to do with words? Aren't words just words? Old guy says his old town is dead and he don't want to talk about it no more. Hamburger. I got a mind to look up that town and call his bluff. <laughs> but I can see old guy thinking. His brow creases, gets a far away look in his eyes. He left his town too. You see, he was one of the young ones. And now he's old. And he's here. And I bet he's thinking one day, one day this town is going to die. And is he going to watch it happen? Gets all angry for a second. And says, that guy, that guy who's bought half this town, he's gonna ruin it for all of us. No trees anymore, just condos, steel and glass. Where are we gonna live? Where are we gonna go? Now, do you have any particular rituals when it comes to approaching your writing? Rituals. <laughs> you know, writers get asked this all the time. I find it fascinating. People are so obsessed with like what we do. <laughs> um, you know, we sit at a desk and we think about things. Um, you know, I will say that I've, I used to do this thing of like, I'll write anywhere on a train, a cafe, you know, and I, and I went through a series of plays where I, there was one play in particular that I wrote actually in Seattle, where I wrote it in a different cafe every day. I wrote a scene. Um, I don't do that anymore. Uh, I, I found that I really need like my stuff. Like I need like a mascot and I need like my books that I need to like run to, to go, oh, let me look up this reference and let me look at this image or, uh, and my music and like stuff like that. And, and just kind of, and I also need like super quiet space uh, to work. So I am a night owl as a writer. So I usually write, start writing at nine and goes till about three o'clock in the morning. And then I I hit the wall and, or I don't, sometimes I'll pull an all nighter if i really feel like the play is taking over. Um, but that's like magic time for me. Uh, and just kind of, uh, prizing that I don't write every day. So this is sort of, I know other writers that do actually, and I admire them. Um, but I don't, I like when a play comes upon me, I'm like, Oh no, I'm writing. And, and then I know that. And I'm usually, what I'm doing before that is usually taking notes or kind of, you have to have time for that active dreaming to occur as a writer. And so I just kind of let that kind of like right now I'm about to, I know I'm going to write another play and I'm a little, because I just finished one last month and I'm like, oh, I have to write something new. And, and I've been thinking about something. I had like three different ideas and I'm kind of tossing them in my head as, as I, as I do other things during the day and they're finding, I think they're finding their meeting point or maybe I'll just one will actually take over. But yeah. And then once I do, I'm a, I, I'm a little bit of a word count nerd. So, uh, I do. I try to do a thousand words a day minimum because I know I'll be cutting the next day when I look back at the work. So, but if I, if I've gone to a thousand, I feel like, okay, well, something's done. Uh, and then I can look back at it the next day and aim for the next thousand. And it's probably a thousand 
500 or maybe it's 2000 uh, and I feel super accomplished. It also gives me a goal in terms of running time of a show. So if I'm building a play and I know I want it to be 90 minutes or two hours or three or three, God forbid, uh, then <laughs> I'm not that kind of writer. Um, uh, then I, then I sort of know what the word count ballpark is going to be for that to occur, especially if I want, I'm interested in a lot of stark, starkness to the page so that collaborators can play. And, and I'm not a writer. I've been noticing other writer friends of mine who write very dense scripts and dense in the sense there's a lot of language on the page. And I'm just like, where's no room for anybody to play in this? Like, you know, so I'm, I've, I'm very conscious of that and, and kind of, I like to get it down to the bone when I'm working. And of course there are passages that I overwrite and then I pull back, but I generally, it's that thousand, thousand. So then it, then I feel like I'm on the train and I try to get to end of play as soon as possible. So in terms of process, I, cause I really don't know what's going to happen. So I, I sort of just like wing it and then I go, Oh, that's what happens. That's cool. And then I go back and edit and shape and do all those things. I also tend to have, um, a kind of what I call the map of the play in my head. It's not like plot based. It's more like a shape uh, that I see somewhere maybe after the first 20 pages. I kind of see like, oh, this is where it's going, I think. And then it's that. Or a, a pre-existing play sort of becomes the foundation for it. Um, so... I've told the story before to friends, but, uh, you know, Simon Stevens, Simon Stevens, who has a show asleep right now, um, <laughs> uh, uh, talks about Birdland uh, 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 having a ball as its source text in a way in terms of structure. And uh, I was interviewing from this book that I edited this year, and, and we were talking about how we sometimes have hidden structures in our plays that respond to other plays or other kinds of stories and uh, it's a great way to hang hang you know as you're working you go I can hang it on that frame for a while because it lets you then be free uh, and then of course it may or may not be that frame at all um, so I recently did a a riff of Henry the Fourth, Part One, uh, the Shakespeare, and it's kind of super hidden, you know, in the in the writing. But I know it's there, and it was like really great for me to have that as as the base uh, that I can play off of. So sometimes I do that, but not always. Is there anything coming up for you that you're especially looking forward to that you'd like to share with the audience? I know we've talked about the No Theater and Red Bike being produced there, but yeah, what other productions? Yes, well, several things. I mean, A, Red Bike is on an NNPN, Rolling World premiere right now. So it just closed in Salt Lake City. It's going to open in Philadelphia, June 6th. It goes to the No Theater in January 19th. And then goes to the Wilbury Group Theater in Providence, Rhode Island in April of 2019. Uh, between that, we'll see if anybody else <laughs> uh, jumps to the plate. Uh, Detroit opens at Halcyon Theater May 10th and runs through... June. I don't have the exact date in front of me, but mid-June. Uh, and and then I have um, a reading of Fuel, which is the second play in the Red Bike cycle of plays, no pun intended, uh, which is a cycle of plays looking at dispossession in America. And Fuel is having a reading at the Playwrights Foundation in San Francisco, uh, May 14th and 15th. And so, and that's starting, that play is starting to have a journey. So I'm excited by the possibilities for it. And and then, you know, oh my heavens, and then beyond that, I'm like writing an opera and, you know, working on like five different things that will probably um, go into 2019, late 2019, 2020. So, but in the immediate, that's what's happening. Great. And the show in Philadelphia is at Simpatico. Simpatico Theater. Is there anywhere that uh, you would like 
for listeners to find you online, place where they can get their hands on some of your work, things like that? Yeah, totally. I'm all over Amazon, so you can see my work <laughs> there. Uh, my website is just uh, my full name uh, at .com, uh, and you can find me there. Uh, I have you know several books published by Intellect Books in the UK, Seagull Books also in the UK, but also distributed by University of Chicago Press, mm. both of them. And uh, so there are collections of my work. So those three collections you can get through University of Chicago Press. Uh, and then um, Broadway Play Publishing publishes my work, TCG, Manchester University Press, Matthew and Drama, many, many, many people. You know, just Google, you'll find like a ton of stuff. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Yeah, I mean, I, I genuinely can't remember the last time I emotionally connected to a play on the page yeah. as, as this. So I was incredibly moved. Yeah. Thank you for your play. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this glimpse into Caridad's play and life. Be sure to catch Jackalope's current production of The Light Fantastic by Ike Holter, which runs through June 16th. And if you enjoyed listening to Landry and I, please check out our comedy podcast, You Simply Must, where we challenge each other to try something new every week. You can find us on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts. It's very silly. Give it a try. We'd like to extend a special thanks to the Chicago Inclusion Project, Edgewater Chamber of Commerce, and you, our audience. Thanks for listening.